Welcome to Dead of the Night, an investigative podcast looking into the disappearance of Devin Riesling, a 23-year-old nursing student who disappeared on February 9th, 2019. On our last episode, we discovered a hidden camera in Devin's bedroom. We also examined Garrett's alibi for the night of Devin's disappearance. This week, we will be reviewing what we know and presenting two theories about what may have happened to Devin using the evidence we've gathered so far. Throughout the course of this investigation, me and my producer Jessica have mostly agreed on our theories about what happened to Devin. However, the information we had gathered over the last two weeks has turned this case on its head, and Jessica and I now have two very different theories about what happened to Devin. From the comments we've been receiving through our email and social media, it seems like the listeners are also divided into two separate camps. It seems important at this point to slow down, take stock, and fully formulate both of these theories. Look at how the evidence fits each one and plan our next move. So I sat down with Jessica in the studio to discuss the two theories. Before I delve into my theory, I want to tell you a few quick stories. In 2008, a man named Matthew Allen Shepard jumped into a freezing river after his dog during a family vacation in the Ozarks. The dog made it out of the fast-moving current, but Matthew never resurfaced. His wife called 911, but the search and rescue operation turned up nothing. After a dive team still couldn't locate the body in the river, Matthew's family lost hope and realized that he was long dead. However, investigators soon discovered that Matthew had a few skeletons in his closet. Just two weeks before his drowning, Matthew was told he was being investigated by his human resources department at work for misuse of a company credit card. Turns out, he had been putting over $40,000 of personal expenses on the company card. So investigators started looking for the possibility that Matthew was alive. They watched and waited for his passport or his social security number to be used. When his wife and child stopped cooperating with the investigation and moved to another state, investigators began looking into them too, which is how they were notified that Matthew's daughter had been registered for a new elementary school in South Dakota. Following a hunch, they contacted the landlord of the apartment whose address was used to register the daughter for the school. When the landlord saw a photo of Matthew, he confirmed it was the person renting the apartment. Only he went by the name John. Investigators found their man. Matthew had been alive all along. When he jumped into the icy water that day, Matthew let the current carry him out of sight of his wife before he pulled himself out of the water and retrieved a bag of clothes and cash he had previously stashed. He fled for Mexico, hunkered down, and waited for his wife to collect his $1.3 million life insurance payout. His family hadn't known about his plan to fake his death, but after just two months of playing dead, he caved and contacted them, revealing that he was actually alive. Two months. That's all that he lasted. There's a book by Elizabeth Greenwood called Playing Dead, A Journey Through the World of Death Fraud. You may have heard about it on an episode of the podcast Criminal. The book is full of stories like this. Stories about people who tried to disappear or fake their death and failed. The book illustrates how insanely difficult it is to go missing or fake your death. It may have been easy to walk away from your life in the 80s or 90s, but not really anymore. Our movements are tracked more than ever before. Think about all the things in daily life that are connected to our name. IP address, email, social security number, you can't even get utilities like internet or cable turned on at a new apartment without a social security number. States are cracking down on driver's licenses in the name of illegal immigration. So it's very challenging to get fake identification anymore. 
Any listeners here in Idaho know that our former state IDs will soon be invalid for air travel because they weren't secure enough. And the new IDs require a lot more proof of identity. Likewise, it used to be possible to go to a graveyard, find someone around the same age as you, and get a copy of their birth certificate made up and take that to the social security office for a new card. But now death certificates are linked to social security numbers. You just can't steal a dead person's identity anymore. Not to mention facial recognition. If Devin ever has a photo of herself posted to Facebook, even an account under a false name, Facebook could instantly recognize it as Devin and tag her. One man who faked his death was found after an investigator noticed that the website looking for tips about the man's disappearance was registering daily hits from an IP address overseas. The IP address led the investigator straight to the missing man who was alive and well. I know Devin is a smart girl, but the amount of planning and preparation that would have to go into this level of deception is enormous. As that episode of Criminal showed, most people just don't have it in them. Pulling off a successful disappearance is difficult for even the most hard-boiled criminal. Most people make mistakes. They either leave behind traces of where they're going or incorporate parts of their former life into their new life. They cave and contact loved ones within a few months. They check old email or social media accounts. They use old credit cards or slip up and tell someone their real name. If Devin disappeared voluntarily, she left behind her only means of transportation and she didn't have any money with her. Her bank account still had funds in it. It was less than $100, but still. Garrett may claim that Devin had bitcoins that she could be using to survive off of, but there's no evidence that this money existed or that Devin ever received it. Likewise, Devin didn't leave behind anything that might indicate where she'd be going. No maps to Mexico with the pages torn out, no guidebooks to Asia, no plane or train tickets to Canada. She hasn't contacted loved ones to say she's okay, and if she was listening, still hasn't after hearing firsthand the worry and grief she's put her friends through. Since her body hasn't been found and there's no death certificate, her brother TJ is stuck with Devin's student loans, a significant financial burden and Patty died all alone in hospice without knowing if Devin was alive or dead. I know we've found out a lot of secrets that Devin kept, but nothing in her behavior has shown her to be that cold and uncaring. So far, we have nothing concrete that points to Devin being alive. Likewise, there's zero evidence that Devin had a second cell phone. Yes, Isaac claims that Devin took a phone call that day, and while it's true that her phone records don't show a phone call from that time, she did get a text from Maxine around the same time that Isaac claims the phone call happened. So it's entirely possible it was just a text that she answered, not a phone call. Here's what we do know. Devin disappeared on a remote mountain road during a snowstorm. She left behind her phone, her keys, and her wallet. Not a single family member or friend has heard from Devin since that day and she has never used her bank cards, social media account, or email address again. We also know that for almost a decade before Devin went missing, she was being meticulously and incessantly stalked. Garrett Lee Haynes followed Devin around in a white van, took photos of her, loaded spyware on her phone, listened to her phone calls, read her text messages and emails. He put a tracking device on her vehicle he put a hidden camera in her bedroom, a camera that we have no evidence to prove that Devin knew about or consented to. 
For all we know, Garrett set up that live stream to make money for himself. He was involuntarily committed to a psychiatric hospital for his problems with mental illness, and worse, he still clearly suffers from delusions of reference, since he claims that Devin is sending him coded messages through spam social media accounts that follow, but don't interact with him. Garrett had everything necessary to commit this crime. First of all, he had a motive. He was desperately in love with Devin, convinced that they belong together. Devin's heartbreak over Damien and getting back together with Isaac could have inspired Garrett to finally snap. Second of all, had the means, a white delivery van with tinted windows to transport her body and multiple firearms he could have used to kill her. And last but not least, he had the time. His alibi for the night of February 9th is flimsy at best. He admitted to being at Devin's car the very next day after her disappearance and breaking into her bedroom to steal the memory card. For all we know, that memory card could have footage of something that incriminates him. It seems like way too big of a coincidence for a small town girl with a stalker to go missing, and somehow that stalker is not involved in her disappearance. I mean, come on, there's no way. At this point, it seems incredibly likely that Garrett was involved. The next step in proving this theory is getting the police to reopen the case so we can get a search warrant for Garrett's vehicle, because I would be shocked if there wasn't blood evidence in that van. So that's my theory. Devin is dead and Garrett Lee Haynes was involved in her murder. Dead of the Night podcast is possible because of support from our sponsors, like Casper. Casper is a mattress company that has reinvented sleep. I struggle with a lot of sleep issues like insomnia and sleepwalking. So when I am able to get some rest, it's important that I'm comfortable. And let me tell you, Casper is comfy. It has three zones of support for all night comfort. The perforated breathable foam keeps you cool, which is important for people who tend to overheat at night, like me. Plus, each mattress cover is made with up to 57 recycled bottles, which is great for the environment. It's the best bed for better sleep. So why don't you head over to casper.com for their 100 night risk-free trial. It's a great theory, Jessica. And I agree that the police need to reopen this case and serve a search warrant on Garrett's van and home if only to clear him from suspicion. While you made a lot of good points, I'm not sure I'm entirely convinced. I do have a rebuttal. Specifically about your argument on the impossibility of going missing in this day and age, most of those people who were caught faking their deaths were escaping federal charges or SEC investigations or had huge debts or unpaid taxes. Nearly all of them left behind family who were trying to collect life insurance policies, usually million dollar ones, and the kind of resources that are used by insurance companies to avoid paying out fake deaths are insane. Well and above our resources on the podcast, Brett Nelson's resources as a private investigator, and not to mention TJ's financial capacity to fund Brett's investigation. It is true that people who fake their deaths for insurance money are almost always caught, but Devin didn't have life insurance, and she wasn't escaping federal charges or debt, so it's not fair to say that if Devin had run away, she'd be caught by now. And there's also a small logical fallacy in your story you presented to bolster your argument and all the stories about fake deaths in general. The only cases of fake deaths we hear about are the ones who get caught. The people who get away with it? Everyone thinks they're really dead. Or missing. 
We don't hear about the successful cases, or else they wouldn't be successful. And if Devin learned anything from her childhood, it was how to learn from other people's mistakes. I also read that book you mentioned by Elizabeth Greenwood, Playing Dead. In the epilogue, she gives her readers a little advice. If you're going to fake your death, don't come back. Don't do it at sea. Go for a hike. Don't bother with a stand-in body or an elaborate funeral. Spend your time and money on obtaining quality authenticating documents. And for the love of God, don't drive if you're supposed to be dead. Ditch the car. And here's what I think. Devin Riesling walked away from her life. Wait, you think she's alive? Yes. I think Devin is alive. And here's my theory. Devin's world was crumbling. Nursing school was Devin's ticket out of Emmett, and it was supposed to be her ticket to get far away from the world of drugs and alcohol that she was escaping in her hometown. The world that led her father to prison and her mother to an early grave. But somewhere along the way, Devin got lost. A prescription for Adderall to help Devin study somehow changed to scoring a bump of cocaine during a party and even fentanyl and barbiturates stolen from the university hospital where she worked. She got swept up in college life and finally being away from the responsibility of dealing with Patty's alcoholism and in love. Dr. Damien Cowan and Devin seemed to have a toxic relationship. Without knowing more about him or his relationship with Devin, it's difficult to say who dragged who down. But regardless, they both lost a lot over the course of their relationship. Damien lost a wife, a home, and a career. Devin, who stuck by Damien during his divorce and the fallout of their affair, also lost her job, her education, and the man she loved all in the same day. She had to move back to her hometown, back to taking care of her alcoholic mother, who was in worse shape than ever, back to dating her high school boyfriend who was in the closet, back to Emmett, the very place she wanted nothing else but to get away from. I think Devin felt trapped. She missed Damien. She didn't want to take care of her mother, who had neglected Devin, robbed her of a childhood, and who became increasingly difficult and abusive as her disease progressed. So, she hatched a plan. She used Garrett, like she always did to get what she wanted out of him. Had him engineer a way to make money secretly, money that couldn't be tracked or traced by design. The day her plan was to be set in motion, she said her goodbyes, saw her best friend Maxine one last time, went on a final date with Isaac, the cashier at Albertsons even mentioned that Devin was buying a large amount of food that day. So in her own way, she was making sure that Patty had something when she left. Then, in the dead of the night, Devin leaves behind her mother, her hometown, her entire identity, and heads for the mountains. She knew that road was so remote that it would be weeks before her car was found. She even left a swimsuit in the back of her car, her cell phone and wallet, and even a small amount of cash in her bank account behind just to make it look like she really just disappeared. She was good. She had done her research, and she was ready to walk away from her life forever. I know what you're thinking. On foot in a snowstorm? There's no way. And you'd be right. There's no way she could have started her new life on foot in such a remote area. That's why I don't think she was alone. I think she was with Damien Cohen. I don't believe they ever actually broke up back in October of 2018. Instead, they pretended to break up while formulating a plan to run away together. Damien might not be a missing person officially, but that's only because he doesn't have anyone in his life who was concerned when he was suddenly gone. He wasn't speaking to his ex-wife. He didn't have any living parents or siblings. 
He told his friends and former colleagues he was moving to Chicago, but there's no evidence he ever did move to Chicago or anywhere else. So, what if Devin did have a secret cell phone? One she used to contact Damien on, and probably conduct research about how to disappear, since there's nothing on her Google search history to show she ever looked into that particular topic. That box of clothing that Asha claims she left in the apartment complex hallway for one of Devin's friends to pick up? None of her friends ever did, and those clothes were never found in her bedroom at home. So think about this. Maybe, just maybe, Damien picked them up and held onto them until they met again. Possibly, let's say, maybe on a forest service road in the early morning hours of February 10th. And the biggest piece of advice that author Elizabeth Greenwood gave was to ditch your car, which Devin did. But she must have had a vehicle to get out of Idaho and to wherever her and Damien were heading. Maybe Damien met her there. Maybe she got into his car and they drove away together. I'm still waiting to hear back from Brett Skiptracer about whether Damien had any vehicles registered to his name, but I'm guessing he did. A vehicle I wouldn't be the least bit surprised to find crossing the US-Canada border, which was only 10 hours to the north. And if that's true, we might even see his vehicle crossing the Canadian border on Highway 95 in Eastport, or Highway 93 in Roosevelt. So that's my theory. What do you think about it, Jessica? I respect your argument, and I definitely see how the circumstantial evidence could lead you to that conclusion. But the problem with your theory is just that. It's all circumstantial. Everything that could prove if Devin was really alive or had planned this are things that we cannot prove concretely. We can't know if Devin really had thousands of dollars worth of bitcoins. There's no evidence she ever had a second cell phone. And I think we both agree that to pull this off, Devin would have to be in contact with Damien. Speaking of Damien, we still don't know if he's really missing or just laying low. You're right that there's really no concrete proof, but that goes both ways. There's also no proof that any of those theories are untrue. Okay, what about Garrett? What's his role in your theory? Just an innocent bystander? Don't you think maybe your former friendship with him is clouding your judgment? It's true that it's difficult for me to imagine Garrett as the kind of person capable of murder. He might be a weird guy, but I just can't see him as a killer. I guess you're right, that is my bias. I want to believe him, believe that he would never hurt Devon, believe that she asked him to install that hidden camera, and believe that she was really being paid in return. Now, in defense of my argument, I will remind you that nobody in Devon's life thought that Garrett was a threat to Devon. Everyone seemed to claim that Devin had the upper hand in that relationship, that she used his devotion to get him to give her the things she wanted. She kept him around. She gave him false hope. Except Patty. Yeah, except Patty. You're right. Patty was afraid of him, but she also didn't know anything about him. She kept her mom in the dark. So do you believe that Garrett is really receiving coded messages from Devin? <laughs> uh, no, no, I, uh... I think that probably is Garrett's little delusion. He wants to keep faith that he was special to her, being the only person that Devin contacted after she left. <laughs> okay, I'm glad we agree on that. And I agree with you about something else, too. About how difficult it is to get fake identification these days. This whole theory relies on an important caveat. For Devin to pull this off, she must have gotten a fake passport, social security number, or some other identification. There's 
really just no way she could have withdrawn her Bitcoin into usable cash, crossed a border, bought plane or bus tickets, or even functioned in daily life without some form of ID. And Jessica, you mentioned how difficult it was to create fake identification these days. And it's true that the Social Security Administration, DMV, and other government entities have made taking over the identity of a deceased person difficult or impossible. However, that's not the only way to get a new identity these days. It's all about the dark web. So I decided to try it out for myself. Try to buy a fake passport and social security number. And for some help, I contacted my friend Beecher, who walked me through the steps to do so. Okay, so just click on the icon for Tor here. And Tor is what again? It's a browser that trades your IP address with a bunch of other people. Basically, it makes it anonymous, and now you're going to go to an Onion site. So, are, are we on the dark web now? Yep, we're on the dark web. It looks so... sketchy? Like 1990s GeoCities or something. Yeah, it's not scary as people make it out to be. Mostly it's full of scams, but I'll take you to one of the more established marketplaces. Beecher directs me to one of many online marketplaces. You may have heard about one of these in the news a few years ago called the Silk Road. The Silk Road is long gone by now, but it's a game of whack-a-mole for law enforcement to try and shut down all of the dark web marketplaces. Some of the marketplaces were harder to get to than others, and luckily, Beecher helped me with the technical stuff. The first item we see is a listing for 20 tabs of Viagra, which is pretty tame so far. But when I scroll down, I see more of the kinds of items I expected. Crystal meth, tabs of LSD with the image of dancing bears, and something called a medicated space brownie? Unfortunately, the only things we're finding on this marketplace are drugs, so we keep looking. Then we get lucky. The next marketplace we try has an entire category for forgeries and counterfeits. Someone is selling $300 worth of fake $10 bills for $77. Tempting, but we keep scrolling. Finally, we hit the jackpot. A fake American driver's license for just $100. US The listing claims it comes with Teslin card, hollow, embossed DOB, UV features, scannable barcode, and readable track. Whatever that means. It also asks the buyer to send in a headshot and a signature, as well as the following information you'd like to be printed on the card. First, middle, and last name. Address, city, state, and zip code. Date of birth, height, weight, eye color, and hair color. We order two from different sellers. Next, we look for passports, which are a lot more expensive. We find one from the United Kingdom that claims to have biometric chips and machine-readable data zones, three-layer security UV, and holograms which will be correct when scanned at borders. But it's $5,000. A little bit above our budget. For only $800, we find a cheaper passport from Uruguay. I admit I'm not quite as confident in this one, but it's within our budget so we go ahead and buy it. Next, we find a counterfeit social security card. All you do is send them a social security number and they'll print it on the card. The best part? It's only 50 bucks. The listing says it's not the actual paper, but a very close match. The problem with this is getting a social security number to use. Like Jessica explained, now that death certificates are linked to social security numbers, you can't just find a dead person's number and use that. Instead, you have to find someone living. Maybe someone incarcerated or disabled, who wouldn't notice if you used theirs. We do find another listing for hacker services. Someone who claims they can find a person's social security number using only their name, address, and date of birth. 
So it's possible Devin may have identified someone whose social security number she could um, borrow using this hacking service to find their number based on their name and address. So for $50, we order the social security card, and the number we ask to be printed is Beecher's real social security number. Beecher has generously offered to let us use his information for this mission. We also ordered the fake ID and passport in his real name as well. After all, we're not actually trying to steal someone's identity, just see how difficult it would be. In the end, we bought two IDs from different sellers, a passport and a social security card. Now we just had to wait for them to come in the mail. Guess what came in the mail today? It actually came? Yeah, it all shipped really fast. I sped over to Beecher's house to look at what we got. One of the driver's licenses we bought looks terrible, I admit. It's not quite as bad as McLovin's Hawaii ID, but it still probably wouldn't pass any real scrutiny. But the other one looks real. Really real. Beecher tried it out at a local liquor store, and when the cashier scanned it, I was sure he would take it from us and call the FBI. But the cashier just handed it back to Beecher and gave us the receipt. The social security card also looked extremely legitimate. We compared it to Beecher's real social security card and found it indistinguishable. I was impressed. The passport, however, was a letdown. The weight and texture of the pages were different from my real passport. The page with the photograph wasn't shiny or holographic. It looked so sketchy we didn't even want to try using it anywhere and risk getting arrested or questioned by Homeland Security. However, Beecher reminded me that with such a realistic social security card, you could get almost any other documentation you needed. Real documentation from government offices. To get an Idaho ID without the star card sticker that allows you to fly, all you need was proof of residency and a social security card. That's it. That means Devin could have used a stolen or fake social security card she bought on the dark web to get a real Idaho ID. From there, you can get a real birth certificate. Idaho only requires a social security card and photo ID. With a birth certificate and ID, you could get a passport. A real US passport, a real birth certificate, and a real state ID with only a fake social security card and a living person's social. It's a bit shocking how easy it all was. We decided to test it out for ourselves. How can I help you? Hi, I was hoping to get an ID. Driver's license or just an ID? Uh, just an ID. Do you want the star card? Nah, I don't need that. Just the standard one. You won't be able to fly with this ID after October 2021. That's okay with me. Alright, I just need your social security card and proof of address. Here's my card, and I've got a phone bill or a utility bill. Either one works. Cool. Fill out this form, please. Sure. And what's your height and weight? Uh, I'm about 5'11 and a half, I think, and I weigh 175. Your eyes are blue? Yep. Just a minute. F913 at window number 37. Alright, I'm going to have you stand right there and I'll take your picture. Right here? Yep. And would you mind taking off your hat? Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Sure. One, two, three. All right, wait here. It's working. Here you go. This is your temporary paper ID. The card will arrive in about 10 days. Do you want it mailed to the address you have here on the form or a different address? 
the address on the form is fine. All right, it'll arrive in about 10 days. Thank you. Have a good day. Holy shit, it fucking worked. Back at the studio, I couldn't stop looking at the ID Beecher got. Even though Beecher used his real name and information to get his new state ID, we felt like Leonardo DiCaprio in Catch Me If You Can since we used the fake social security card we bought online. Beecher was eager to keep going, so he went to the hospital where he was born and used his new ID and his fake social security card to get a copy of his birth certificate too. He didn't go as far as getting a passport, Beecher wasn't comfortable with defrauding the federal government, but so far not a single person had noticed that the social security card he was using was fake. It was feeling more and more possible that Devin could have acquired fake documents quite easily. The only question that lingered in my mind was this. Whose name and social security number had Devin used, and how did she find it? I pondered this question all week, until a piece of breaking news threatened to turn my theory upside down. An investigation into a missing person in Emmett has been reopened. Police say that new evidence led them to take a second look at the disappearance of Devin Riesling. As you all heard in our update, the police have reopened Devin Riesling's case and search warrants were conducted yesterday. Brett's connections in law enforcement have passed along a few unconfirmed rumors. First, we've heard that blood evidence was found at at least one of the search locations. Second, we know that police have issued a rush on forensic testing for the evidence that was found. This is incredible news. Blood evidence brings us that much closer to a suspect, to charges being filed, and to finding out what really happened to Devin. And I admit that the discovery of blood at the crime scene makes my theory seem less likely, which is very disappointing. Because I was just starting to have faith that she was alive, but that being said, I'm so relieved that the police are finally taking this seriously and looking into Garrett. So, Jessica, I'm just curious. If we find out in the next few days that this blood belongs to Devin, there's still one huge unanswered question. Where is Devin's body? Kenneth's question sent me down a bit of a rabbit hole. If the NSA wasn't already monitoring my Google search activity, they certainly are now. Of course, the most obvious place a body could be buried is in the Boise National Forest. However, I found that a six-foot-deep grave takes six hours to dig with a shovel. Of course, it's unlikely that anyone in a rush to dispose of a body would dig a six-foot-deep grave, but at an average of one hour per foot, it would still take one hour to dig a one-foot-deep grave. And those numbers are in optimal conditions. The temperature the night of February 9th was 15 to 20 degrees, which means the ground was frozen. There's simply no way that Garrett could have buried Devin's body in the frozen ground in the 27-minute window of the time that he had, unless he had already pre-dug a grave earlier. Furthermore, that grave could not have been within the 25-mile search radius that was covered by the cadaver dogs. So, all things considered, being buried seems unlikely. Next is water. Lakes, rivers, swamps, and oceans are one of the most common dumping grounds for killers to get rid of a body. The closest body of water, of course, was the middle fork of the Payette River, which ran alongside Forest Service Road 698. But in a river frequented by recreation, fishing, and rafting, a body would have been discovered long ago. The next closest body of water is Deadwood Reservoir. And Deadwood Reservoir is only 10 miles away as the crow flies. But due to the mountain conditions, there are no direct roads or even hiking trails that lead directly there from the road Devon's car was on. 
The roads that do lead there are very roundabout. In fact, it would take nearly four hours one way to drive there, so Deadwood Reservoir again seems unlikely. That leads me to Black Canyon Reservoir. Black Canyon is a steep-sided reservoir just off Highway 52, the very highway that connects Emmett to the Boise National Forest. Garrett wouldn't have to drive out of his way at all. He could literally have pulled over at the side of the road, dumped her body, and kept driving back to Emmett without even taking a detour. Black Canyon is an 1,100-acre reservoir featuring dark black water and over 12 miles of shore. So there's a lot of opportunity to not be seen, especially in the middle of the night. So if I were looking for Devin's body, I would start there. It's the only theory that makes sense given the narrow window of opportunity if Garrett was indeed using a bot to play his game for him while he snuck out. I have to agree with you about that. And hopefully the police agree with your conclusion and deploy a dive team to search the reservoir. That's it for this episode of Dead of the Night. Thank you so much for listening. If you have a tip about the case, you can leave us a voicemail at 208-398-3110. This episode was produced by Gina Harris, Spencer Hudson, and Danielle Choda. Jessica O'Neill is our audio engineer, and I'm Kenneth Bailey, asking once again, have you seen Devin Riesling? <laughs>